0: All right, Jessie. Although I'm still in complete awe with the Looney Celeste beard, I'm really excited about us getting spooky for the next couple of weeks for Halloween.
1: Oh my goodness, yes. Get ready, because this week we have human sacrifice, involuntary cannibalism, axe murder, Romani fortune tellers, and an extremely cursed serial killer. I'm Andy Cassette, and I'm Jessie Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy.
0: Hi, Jessie.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime meets human interest and where kind of regular people are driven to scary extremes by lust, love and greed.
0: You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help us help new people discover the show. Okay, now that all that business is out of the way, Andy, I am so excited for this show. That I'm going to lose my mind. This story I found in the most random way. It was an Amazon suggestion to me based on my true crime reading that I would like this book. Okay. Uh, the The book is called The Curse by Ryan Green. He is so phenomenal. He's a UK-based true crime writer. And I'm going to end up doing so many of his stories because I absolutely loved his writing style. And it looks like he does really bizarre cases. And this is truly the craziest love murder story we've ever had. (laughs) Human sacrifice, involuntary cannibalism, it has everything. There's so much I could say, but let's put my mouth where the action is. Well, that sounds dirty. (laughs) Right (laughs) on on par. (laughs) Yeah, right on par. Let's just jump right in, okay? Perfect. This is a story about love. It's a story of the lengths we will go to to protect those we love the most. It's a story of fear and desire. It's also a story of curses, superstition – fortune tellers, human sacrifice, and involuntary cannibalism. But back to love for a moment. The vast majority of children are born out of an act of the deepest, truest love – if not in the very least, a deep and abiding hunger and passion, each life begins with a spark of communion, desire, and ideally affection. Unfortunately, this was not the case for the subject of today's story, a wretched woman so gnarled and twisted with fear and tainted love that she could have only been born of hatred, brutality, and violence a child born marked by tragedy that would follow her until the end of her days. And just as love multiplies, so does violence. Welcome to the macabre, sensational story of Italy's first female serial killer, the cursed Leonardo Cianciulli. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And it's such a tragic story. She's – you're going to be on her side for most of it until the end. Then you're – going to be grossed out by her. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. Oh, no. In the south of Italy, in late 1893, Leonardo's mother, Amelia D'Nolfi, was a teenage beauty just approaching marriageable age. So she could definitely have her pick of any of the eligible men in their little town. One man who would certainly not be on that list was Mariano Cianciulli, an older single man with a cruel nature and absolutely no wealth. Unlucky for Amelia, Mariano had become obsessed with the young girl, oh, stalking no. and coveting her. Mm-hmm. Enraged and embittered at his own lack of prospects, he transferred his resentment at his own failings onto the glowing girl he could never court. So he's like the original incel. Yeah. Hmm. So he stalked and laid in wait until one night he finally got his chance to exert his passions and enact revenge at what he perceived was the class system. He ambushed Amelia as she returned home from a well-chaperoned dinner party, dragged her off the road into a farmer's field. Oh, the my dinner God. Yeah, it's horrifying. The dinner party would be the last time Amelia ever felt happiness. That night, innocent Amelia, who thought she was only being mugged, was shocked at the stunning bodily violence that assaulted her as Mariano raped her. So her parents hadn't done anything any sort of sexual education with her. She was like a good Catholic girl, and it was like one of those things where maybe her mother would have pulled her aside like on the day she got married and been like, this is what you have to expect. Yeah. So she had no idea what sex was, what it was going to be like, what was going to happen. So when he was assaulting her, she thought he was reaching under her skirts to grab her money bag. Yeah. And so she was like, I don't have any money. I have nothing. I have nothing on me. And she literally didn't know what was happening when he raped her. Uh, so she was just shocked. I mean, she was in no way prepared for what was happening, you know? And
0: when, when was this?
1: So she was in her teens. It doesn't say exactly how old she was. But she was probably – I'm imagining if she was approaching marriageable age back in the late 1800s, she was probably 14, 15, maybe 16. Okay. So she's a teenager. Yeah. So afterwards he like got up and he left. So she lay in the fields for hours after and she was completely numb with shock and horror. So she finally drags herself home and she's bruised and bleeding. But the Catholic guilt and shame were super strong in her. And though she lacked education in those matters, she did know something sexual and therefore sinful had happened to her. She buried her shame deep within her and she told no one of what
0: happened. Oh my God. And Mm -hmm. she got
1: pregnant. Exactly. Meanwhile, Mariano took pleasure at their new dynamic. Once Amelia had barely deigned to glance in his direction, and now she was obviously terrified of him, so her eyes sought him out in every crowd, and she visibly shuddered in fear. It was the closest thing to power the loser had ever felt in his life, so he totally got off on this.
0: So disgusting
1: so disgusting. Amelia's nightmare only continued when she found her waistline widening and the absence of her period in the coming months. So her mother realized what was going on with her daughter and forced her to confess to what she perceived as her daughter's sexual activities. Yeah. So Amelia tearfully recounted the assault and she named the man who had violently attacked her. So you can only imagine her horror when the next night she found her parents hosting none other than her rapist and his family for dinner to arrange their marriage
0: that is so horrible
1: it's beyond fucked up there was only one way to maintain their daughters and thusly their own honor yep. and that was an official union which would make this indiscretion right in the eyes of god oh my god literally oh this is so traumatizing So Mariano was like the cat who got the cream. Like this was a match that he could have never dreamed of. He would have never been, like, allowed to court her otherwise, and now he just gets her as a wife. It's it's a reward for his disgusting, violent behavior. So all of Amelia's dreams of a large festive wedding and a beautiful marital home were obviously dashed to pieces. Her parents married her off quickly without ceremony, and she moved from her parents' relatively wealthy home with servants into a hovel with her rapist in the poorest part of town.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Talk about a reversal of fortune. I mean, ugh. Worse yet, all of her friends in high society and her family turned their backs on her. They thought if she hadn't wanted to be dragged down into the muck from her ivory tower, perhaps she shouldn't have allowed her own carnal desires to control her. So they're all acting like this is something she had a part of. While her stomach bloated, Mariano drank, raped, and hit her. By oh, the time. My God. Oh, yeah, he was gross. I think he really. The first time she ever noticed him was when he was hurting her. Yeah. And so I think that set up a really sick dynamic with them. Like that's how he like enjoyed getting her attention, you know?
0: And her family just doesn't care at all.
1: No, they totally abandoned her. They're like, you're his problem now. You're dead wow. to us basically. Wow. So by the time the great pains of birth ripped through her body she welcomed death praying that she and the miserable child would both be lifted out of this revolting existence She and the baby proved much too strong for that wish however and Leonarda Cianciulli was born in April of 1894 So I think some women would feel that a like a child was a joyful addition to their life like they otherwise had a really shitty life but like they could say that this one thing was a bright spot in their life, but this was not the case with Amelia, unfortunately. When
0: when is her birthday in April? I know someone else whose birthday is in April.
1: They didn't say exactly. They just said April. I'm like, oh, God. (laughs) My birthday is April 10th,
0: guys.
1: (laughs) This would be a very bad birthday to share. (laughs) Yeah. So unfortunately for Leonardo, Amelia hated her from the very first moments of her life. So she totally blamed Leonardo for all of her problems. Like obviously Mariano too, but there was this feeling that like this child had decided to hang on in her womb and it was the child who ruined her life. Like if she hadn't fallen pregnant, nobody would have found out about this rape and she could have potentially gone about her life, never discussing it. And instead there was this living, walking, breathing embodiment of her shame. And so she just treated Leonardo terribly.
0: Which we've talked about that before when the mom is really mean to the child. That almost is like worse than...
1: Oh, totally. It's the, the one person that we're supposed to be comforted by no matter what, you know? So Leonardo's early childhood was absolutely dreadful. The Chianchulis were thrown out of town after town for Mariano's drinking, thieving, And Leonardo often witnessed her mother's rape by her father.
0: Oh, God.
1: Yep. Amelia, who lacked control or any sort of outlet in her own life, exerted all of her control and rage onto Leonardo, beating the toddler mercilessly for the smallest infraction. So it was just like a chain, you know, when, when somebody is abused and beaten, they take it out on somebody smaller than themselves.
0: Yep. For
1: sure. So she poured verbal and physical abuse onto the tiny child. Leonardo's earliest memories were those of guilt, shame, and violence. Amelia prayed every night for Mariano's death, her own death, and even her baby daughter's. Finally, one of those prayers were answered when Mariano failed to come home for weeks at a time. She finally found him deathly ill in a hovel he had been drinking in. And then he passed of his sickness. Oh my God. Amelia. Yeah, so he died. Now, she's left with very little money or prospects. However, she's like, hey, I'm still pretty. I'm still young. Perhaps she could finally secure herself a good marital match and lift herself out of despair, which is how women in this era, you know, elevated themselves. Yep. Unfortunately, her reputation was completely sullied by this whole affair. Plus, she's like a single mom at this point, which in this era was not looked at favorably. So the only men who really approached her and wanted to court her were basically criminals and like the scum of society. So that hope of like elevating herself through marriage was totally gone. So she ended up remarrying a con man. And when tricks were good, he, you know, they had a pretty good lifestyle and he would shower Amelia with gifts. But when his cons went bad, obviously they'd be run out of town. Oh God. So her stepfather largely ignored Leonardo, and the only attention she received from her mother was abusive. So she was only a preteen when Leonardo first attempted suicide by making a noose out of her bed sheets, The sheets ripped apart, and she only had a bruised larynx to show for her efforts. So she tried to kill herself again at 13, but once more, fate seemed to intervene to save the girl. As she grew older and more beautiful, however, her mother stopped looking at her with derision and instead began to plot what a good-looking young woman from the Denolfi line could get her in a good marriage. So Amelia's like, I was sullied. My reputation was ruined. But technically, she came from a good family. So perhaps the daughter who had ruined her own chances at elevation through marriage could now elevate her with hers. And that's kind of what she was hoping for. So all of a sudden, she's like, hmm, maybe Leonardo's not so bad. (laughs) So several nice families had approached Amelia about potential courtships And she definitely milked the visits and the teas and the gifts for all they were worth because Amelia was enjoying being curried to and being treated like a human for the first time ever. But unfortunately, that delay would be her undoing because she was really like drawing the process out and she wasn't like arranging courtships as fast as she could with Leonarda. So in the meantime, Leonarda had already been surreptitiously dating and I think she really wanted to get out of her mom's home and she wanted a totally different relationship. She wanted to build her own family. You know, like a lot of people who are abused and have bad childhoods, they're very eager to start something that's healthy and new. And they'd like to remove themselves from the abusive past as soon as possible for very good reason, you know?
0: Of course. Yeah.
1: So she had already settled on a modest, stable, loving boy with little prospects, but great kindness. And he just came from a very average or even like lower income family. So it was definitely no one that her mother would have considered for her. Okay, um, but, but she really felt like this guy was super trustworthy and she really fell in love with him. His name was Rafael Pensardi and he was a low-paid government clerk whose proposal obviously Amelia dismissed out of hand. Showing some backbone for the first time in her life, Leonardo accepted the proposal anyway without her mother's permission and married Rafael in a small ceremony attended by only his family and a few of her friends. When she returned to her mother's home to retrieve her Poultry belongings to move into her new husband's home, she met her mother's vitriol. So I she know. came home. Yeah. <laughs> she cursed Leonardo's marriage. There was no great speech about how she'd betrayed her mother's trust, no reveal of the amazing life that she'd missed out on by defying her wishes, only the simple curse spat at Leonardo with all the certainty that Amelia possessed. Nothing could have been more devastating to Leonardo. She'd readied herself for abuse, but this felt like the ultimate dismissal. Her mother's fury was such that she didn't even have words to express it anymore. All that she had was hatred, expressed as purely as it could be with the desire for nothing but evil things to happen to Leonardo. That curse followed Leonardo for the rest of her life. At this point, chaos had reigned over her existence for so long that the very idea of any underlying order was appealing, even when the mystical underpinnings of her worldview meant that suffering was always in the cards. She'd always believed in the supernatural, as was normal for young women of the time, but now she was faced with the reality of that belief. She truly believed that her mother's words had power and they haunted her. So the young couple's early years were marred by sickness and sadness. In modern days, Leonardo most likely would have been diagnosed with extreme anxiety and epilepsy. She suffered from seizures and her anxiety about having the seizures seemed to bring them on. So she approached a Romani gypsy at a traveling fair to seek out help for her unknown illness. Before the reading could even begin, Leonarda yelped out, Am I going to die? Is that what the curse is going to do? Frowning, the fortune teller took hold of her hands and drew them closer, tracing Leonarda's lifeline with a fingertip. No, you're not going to die. Not for a long time. Relief flooded through Leonarda. She would have toppled from her seat if the fortune teller wasn't still holding on to her hands. The headaches and seizures weren't a sign that the curse was killing her. They were just some sickness. She didn't need to be afraid. She was so relieved that she almost missed the next thing that the fortune teller said. You're going to live a long life full of sadness. You will outlive every one of your children.
0: Oh my God. That's like the gave me goosebumps right now.
1: That's the absolute worst thing any person who wants to be a parent or is a parent could ever hear
0: Ugh, that's nauseating
1: no one no one should outlive their children it's just At all all of your children Ugh. she couldn't think of any worse punishment that her mother could have inflicted on her than this she couldn't think of any greater cruelty that any woman could have done to another than take the gift that she had for creating life and turning it against her The curse seemed to bear true when it took her three years to conceive a baby. And once she did. Yeah. And this – she was very surprised by this because her mother had obviously regaled her with stories about her unfortunate fertility. And how she had, like, used all these herbs and stuff to never get pregnant all the times Mariano raped her ever since then. And so she had warned Leonarda over and over again, like, you will get pregnant at the drop of the hat. You can never screw around. So, the fact that she didn't get pregnant for three years, of course, worried her. And then, even worse, when she finally did start getting pregnant, she had three back to back miscarriages. Mm hmm. So the couple moved to Raphael's childhood home of Loria Potenza, where they gained some semblance of happiness. Raphael scored a good job. They put a deposit down on a small but warm home. And they had the greater Pensardi family for love and support. For once, a hundred miles away from where her mother cursed her, Leonardo began to feel something like optimism. So, her positive outlook was rewarded when her eldest living child, Giuseppe, was born healthy in 1922. So, yeah, so she absolutely adored Giuseppe. I think after the years of fertility issues, the many miscarriages, having a totally easy pregnancy and an easy birth made her just think that the sun shone out of his little tiny butthole, you know?
0: Of course. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So she just adored him. So with the childcare support of Raphael's family and her desire to give her baby boy all he wished for, Leonardo wanted to help out with the family money, and she began to work at a string of taverns to contribute to the family's income. However, the noisy service lifestyle only exacerbated her headaches, anxiety, and seizures. Like, you know how stressful it is when you work in a busy place, and she just did not- have the type of personality or temperament for that type of work. Yep. So during this time, all of her seizures got worse. She suffered another miscarriage. And though the couple then ultimately celebrated the birth of two girls and a boy in quick succession, two out of three of those children would die before they reached toddlerhood.
0: Two out of the three?
1: Yeah. So they have... Two living children that have already died, and there would be more deaths on the way. I mean, at this time period in rural areas, so many kids died. Like, that's of why course. they always joke about it. Like, you have – like, if you're a farmer, you have, like, ten kids, so six of them survive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So things were not going well. uh Is she Leonardo- in touch
0: with her mother at all during this time, or – No. Okay.
1: So they completely cut ties. And I actually don't know what happened to her mother. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they moved 100 miles away at this point. So she's not keeping in touch with her. Leonardo became untethered by grief, ripping out her hair and having anxiety attacks constantly. She became paranoid and obsessive over her two surviving children, especially her golden boy, her favorite child, Giuseppe. Desperate to aid his wife and help his struggling family, Raphael found Leonardo a job that wouldn't exacerbate her condition. She would be working as a cleaner after hours at a bank. And Leonardo found that she enjoyed the quiet and the satisfaction of the job well done. Obviously, she got to do this during a time nobody's at the bank. So it was super quiet and she took pride in her work. And she even began to mix her own cleaning solvents and soaps to best accomplish her goals. Though the job paid poorly, uh, she found a small bright spot in it, a bright spot that she desperately needed. So during this period, Leonardo had suffered more losses and more of her young children had died. While she was at work one night and the children were in Raphael's care, they lost their 10th child. Wait, how did we go from 2 to 10? I just – this book kind of jumped around. She managed to give birth to 14 children, and out of the 14, 10 of them died.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. Who has – she had 14 children?
1: She basically was getting pregnant back to back. So despite that one early weird infertility gap, she was getting pregnant constantly, but she was having so many miscarriages, and so many babies were dying before they were like six months to a year old. Holy shit. Yeah, it was absolutely tragic. I mean, it's no wonder she thought that the curse was real. Yeah. Anyone would feel like this. Even people who aren't superstitious or don't believe in supernatural entities. If you give birth to 14 children and 10 of them die, you will think you're cursed. Of course. The couple barely had enough money for food and rent, so the poor baby was buried in a pauper's grave next to its brothers and sisters, completely unmarked. Oof. So this loss completely broke her. I mean, she was already hanging by a thread and and now she's – I already used the word untethered, but that's the word for it. She's lost. Yeah. She returned to work the next night and whatever restraint that might have been holding her back in the past was entirely gone now. So this is also from Ryan Green's book. She toppled over the precipice of despair and landed in desperation. She needed more. She needed enough money to call out the doctor at the first sign of sickness. She needed a house outside of the city where disease spread so readily. She needed enough money to make all of their problems a thing of the past. In the bank, she had no access to the cash overnight, But she had ready access to the ledgers and records. She created a false account and simply noted that it contained the money she considered to be a reasonable amount to form her nest egg. To her mind, it was a matter of life and death to have that money, to save all of the children that she'd had yet to lose. Obviously, the owners of the bank didn't agree. The clerical error that had appeared in their books hadn't gone unnoticed, and when Leonardo, whom everyone knew was just a poor cleaner... Came to clear out the account one day, the police escorted her out of the building. Yikes. Uh, It's just so sad. Of course, she feels driven to this. She just buried her 10th child. Yeah. Also, her hormones must be all over the place with all of these losses.
0: I know, but it's not anything that money could fix either.
1: No, I mean, she was just grappling, like, she was grappling for anything. Like, maybe they didn't get. They didn't get to see a doctor enough, you know? Yeah. For her fraud, she was convicted, sentenced, and imprisoned in 1927. In all likelihood, her husband would have had his name dragged through the dirt too if she hadn't made it so abundantly clear in her confession that she had worked alone, seized by madness. So she ended up serving 18 months in a women's penitentiary that was basically a convent. So nuns were the women's jailers, and Leonardo did surprisingly well in jail. And I think it's because she was accustomed to female authority figures she could never satisfy due to growing up with her mother. Yeah, (laughs) she's
0: like, I got this in the bag.
1: I like these nuns are great to me. I love them. They're they're not like making it personal when they beat me, you know. (laughs) When she was released, the Pansardi family gave the couple what little bits of money they could spare and encouraged them to find a new town to call home. Both Raphael and Leonardo's job prospects were ruined by her scandalous arrest. The family moved to Lacedonia, hoping for a fresh start. Raphael secured a decent clerical job for himself, and they had enough money to rent a small house on a river and allow Leonardo to stay home with her beloved children. The change benefited Leonardo, who was joyful when she discovered she was once again pregnant. But brought down to the depths of misery when she miscarried again.
0: So how many miscarriages has she had?
1: I have honestly lost count. I was <laughs> trying to go back in the book and count by this yeah. point. And I have no idea because he did skip around a little bit. So I'm not sure how many she's had at this point. And at some point I was like, when he's saying that she lost children, is, she, is he talking about the miscarriages? Exactly.
0: but He's not.
1: But he's not. I read on Wikipedia as well that she gave birth to 14 children and only four of them survived. So she lost 10 children that were born. I do not know how old they all were. Um, But he's Ugh. mentioned several miscarriages as well. So clearly she was pregnant many, many, many times and they just didn't survive, you know? Oh, my God. Beset by grief, she sought out a fortune teller once more, praying for the best, but expecting only death and destruction in her future, as she had come to expect. Yep. The Romani woman this time surprised her by peering into her palms and proclaiming, In one hand, I can see prison. In the other, a mental asylum. Oh, shit. So that's not good. So obviously. Yeah, she's like, wait a minute. This is not about the death of myself or my kids or my sickness. This is a totally new thing. So she might have assumed that the fortune teller was talking about her recent prison stint, of course. But the part about the mental asylum really terrified her. Because in the early 1900s in Italy, and really all around the world, being deemed insane was comparable to a death sentence. There was no cure considered, no release, only eternal confinement in facilities that weren't fit to hold wild animals, let alone suffering people. You know, we've all seen those documentaries or read about early mental institutions and the deplorable conditions.
0: It's horrible.
1: Yeah, so this was this prediction was worse than anything she could have ever imagined. A dark cloud hung over Leonardo to the degree that when she fell pregnant and delivered a healthy baby boy, she couldn't feel any joy, only impending doom. Yeah, but this one lived. Yay. Okay. So this one must have been part of the 14, so she must have had 13 kids and 10 of them died and then this one lived because she gave birth to 14 total. So the only thing that even remotely satisfied her unhappiness was obsessively seeking out Romani fortune tellers and attempting to learn their craft. So I think she was doing this out of a desire to control her own destiny. Over the months, she began to acquire a library of books on the subject of fortune telling, searching through each one in a vain attempt to find some way to circumvent her imagined fate. It would prove to be ultimately useless – While she learned how to read the fortunes of others from her time with the Romani and her books, there was no way for her to predict what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. So like I said, I think learning about the occult and other mystical teachings really gave Leonardo a small sense of security against the great and scary unknown.
0: Yeah. For someone who's like already kind of mentally unstable, I feel like it's really dangerous and such a slippery slope.
1: It is for sure a slippery slope, as we yeah. will see here. She is sliding all the way down to the bottom here. She's
0: like <laughs> lubing herself up and just taking
1: she, a She is just doing a <laughs> greased shoot all the way down. <laughs> it is wrapping herself in Crisco and taking a oh. ride on the long slide at the Carny Fair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So I think, though, she's, like, starting to think, like, maybe if I learn about this and this and this and I educate myself, uh, this won't happen to me. So they're really enjoying their time in Lacedonia, and it's now it's harvest season. And this is when the entire village would have a ceremony and they would have a big celebration, especially if the harvest was good, which it was this year. And a lot of the rural workers and then just the total townspeople in celebration would sleep outdoors. Okay. So that night, the small Pansardi family ate and they danced with the townspeople and they were all really happy at the harvest and they decided to camp out in the fields nestling down together in the great outdoors on down blankets, which sounds super duper fun. Yeah. So it was still dark when Leonardo was shaken awake and at first she thought maybe she was having a seizure, but then she noticed other people who seemed like they were like sitting up and looking around too. And some of the women in the fields began to murmur amongst themselves that there was something weird going on, like ghosts or omens. Still, minutes went by and nothing had happened again. They didn't feel like any more shaking. So everyone, like, kind of settled back down to sleep, all except Leonardo, who could recognize the eye of evil on the small town. Something bad was coming. She could feel it in her bones. The next tremor woke anyone who was still sleeping. The baby at Leonardo's side began to cry, a piercing shriek in the darkness. She scooped it up but didn't dare to stand for fear that one of her seizures would rack her and make her drop her son. The terror in her bones had already spread to her muscles. Every inch of her was shuddering. She rolled over to lay the screaming baby in Raphael's arms before the fit could take her, but then she realized that he was shaking too. This wasn't one of her fits. The whole world was shaking. More screams started up in the fields around her, women and children shaken from their rest, confronted with a world of chaos they could have never predicted, which lay just beneath the surface of their perfectly ordered lives. For the first time, they all saw the world as Leonardo did, and it was enough to drive them to wailing despair. Leonardo only had a moment to feel a little smug at the weakness of others before the earthquake really hit. The earth beneath them rippled like water, throwing anyone who'd made it to their feet on the ground. But that nauseating motion was nothing compared to the hellish noise that echoed around the valley. As the stones of the hills bucked and cracked, so did the man-made structures. But while the hills had the mass to survive being slung back and forth, bricks did not. In one great rippling line, the people in the fields watched the earthquake rip through their town, toppling walls, collapsing roofs, and flinging cobblestones from the road into the air and raining them back down like hailstones.
0: Whoa.
1: It was bad. It was a really bad one. I don't know exactly what it's measurements were because they didn't say in the book but it was nasty this was a doom like nothing leonarda had ever seen by moonlight she saw the earth itself swallowing up the home she'd come to love and the life she'd built along with it she wondered if this was the madness that the fortune tellers had warned her of or just the clearest sign yet that no matter where she went or what she did the curse would pursue her and destroy all she held dear
0: oh my god that's so devastating
1: Yep. And an equal number of people that died when the, the earthquake first hit were, ki- like were killed. The same amount of people were killed when aftershocks set all of the rubble back into motion because there was people trapped in the ruined buildings that were crushed. And then the survivors were screaming from the buildings and people rushed in to save them. And then the aftershocks happened and the buildings collapsed on both the survivors and the rescuers. The death toll of the 1930 Irpinia earthquake was a little over 1,400 people.
0: Wow. And how many people are in the town normally?
1: So almost all of them were in Avellino, centered around the little town of Lacedonia. Ugh. Yeah. So sad. It's devastating. For Leonardo, the psychological impact of the quake was almost as severe as the physical one. They'd lost their home, their livelihood, and all of their possessions. And the local government did throw up shacks for the survivors to live in, but their lives were over there. All of the stability and security that she had wrapped herself around like a blanket had been stripped away in an instant by forces so powerful and unknowable that they might as well have been supernatural. Any doubts that she'd been able to entertain about her curse being a figment of her imagination were wiped away along with the happy life that they had so briefly known. Is Italy known for earthquakes? Like do earthquakes happen there? I think earthquakes happen everywhere, kind of. Okay. I mean, like not as commonly as they do in California and places where there's big faults, but Yeah. So anyway, I think that all of this stuff is definitely contributing to her feeling it of uh, being cursed. It's all feeding mm-hmm. into it because people look for what they want to see in the world. They they want that confirmation bias. Yeah, She she already believes that this is happening to her and now there's every evidence through the lost children, the miscarriages, a freaking earthquake that she is absolutely cursed and she's also thinking now I just shared my curse with everyone in this beautiful town. Mm -hmm. The Pansardi family was broke and completely spirit broken as well when they arrived in Correggio to start anew once more. Altogether, they had lost homes, jobs, reputations, faith, and most tragically, those 10 children. They moved into a new home with a vacant storefront with heavy hearts and their four surviving children. For the first time ever, the family actually put down roots. And this was a great place for them for a very long time. Leonarda made a wide network of female friends, Raphael excelled in his new clerical job, the children flourished under this new stability, and Leonarda even became an entrepreneur. She decided to use the skills she'd learned long ago at that ill-fated bank job, and this time focus her talents on upscale fragrant soaps for the human body rather than the cleaning detergents.
0: So Cool.
1: So cool. So she had found, like I said, in that bank job that she was actually really good at being really creative and mixing these different cleaning solvents. And she's like, huh, we have this storefront in this little home we're renting. I might as well figure out what I could sell. And she was like, it's not very glamorous to sell cleaning products, but everybody needs soap and why not make high-end soap? So cool. It's really cool. And the shop was a complete success. Word spread all over Italy of her luxury perfumed soaps. Finally, Leonardo had the happy ending she had long wished for. She could now support her entire family on her own. So they were always – Yeah. They were always struggling with just his clerical work. And now basically she could be the breadwinner for sure. So cool. She also got to watch Giuseppe blossom into a happy, handsome young man. Like, obviously, we all know stability is good for children. And for the first time ever, they were in one place. They weren't freaked out about money. He could make friends. She was making friends. And obviously, her obsessive paranoia about where he was and if he was okay all the time was slightly lessening, you know? So Leonardo still practiced her fortune telling skills. And this is something that the women in the village particularly were interested in. And this was half like almost a religious thing, like half of believing in supernatural and believing she's actually telling the truth, and half kind of an entertainment thing like it is today. When it became
0: tarot cards read.
1: Exactly. It's it's fun. You know, when you like have a couple drinks, then you see like a shop window that says, like, tarot readings or, like, palm readings, and you're like, why not? It's fun.
0: That's why it was always such a hit at Coochie Coochie.
1: Oh, God, I love that place. Oh, R.I.P. Coochie yes. Coochie. R. I. Shout out. Oh, that place was great. But this actually made her very, very popular. When it became clear that the predictions that Leonardo had made when reading their palms were actually coming true, that once again shifted her position in the town's complex social hierarchy. She was soon being consulted surreptitiously, for the most part, by everyone of influence in the town. When a farmer had to choose what crops to plant, he came to ask the soap maker. When a woman had to choose between two suitors, she came to ask the soap maker. Leonarda became the advisor to almost every adult in the town of Correggio, both to those who were superstitious enough to believe that she could predict the future, and to those who doubted her powers but believed that she must be terribly intelligent to successfully bilk everyone else in town into believing her. It seemed likely that Leonardo, at least, believed in the veracity of her predictions, and she made statements during the readings that ran counter to her own best interests frequently enough that nobody suspected that she was using them as a means of manipulation. Fame of her soap may have spread far and wide, but her fortune-telling remained a more localized, open secret for the most part. Although, when Romani caravans passed by town, they'd stop at the store to buy her wares and share what stories they could of the outside world with Leonardo. It was as though they had adopted her as one of their own. These Romani visitors frequently bought Leonardo special gifts to offer and barter instead of buying her expensive and exquisite soaps outright. Books on the occult featured heavily in this trading, as did tarot cards, bone runes, and other paraphernalia of Italy's burgeoning spiritualist and mesmerist movements. Soon, she dissembled a whole library of occult literature comparable in scale to the ones boasted by many of the private collections that could be found, if one knew where to look in the biggest cities of Italy. Wow. So she's getting deep. Yep. Yep. Leonardo began to delve deeper and deeper into the dark arts, branching into other European witchcraft traditions and even a touch of American-style voodoo magic. She wanted to be a fatuccieri, a fixer, stitching charm bags together to work her will on the world, using herbs and spells to heal and hurt those around her. More than anything else, she wanted to pick apart the threads of whatever curse was bound to her and set herself free once and for all. She became an expert in spells of fertility, sickness, loyalty, luck, and her own specialty, protection. All that she had to do now was keep her head down, go through the rituals she'd learned, make her soap, and be happy. What could go wrong? (laughs) Well, as whenever I ask that question on the show, lots, it turns out. Pretty much everything. Pretty much everything is going to go wrong from here on out. In 1939, almost a decade after her family had finally found happiness in Correggio, World War II broke out and all of the safety she had cocooned her favorite son in was threatened.
0: Oh, no. Be-
1: yeah, because beloved now-grown Giuseppe... Joined up to serve with Italy and follow Mussolini. Okay, that's not going to go well. Yikes. Giuseppe bought the patriotic, fascist propaganda hook, line, and sinker. Plus, he was eager to prove his independence and manliness. He had been coddled and overloved by Leonardo his entire life, and now he was desperate to break out on his own. So it was an opportunity for him more than anything to prove his own independence. Leonardo and her generation were old enough to remember the men who didn't return from the First World War. Even worse were those that did, missing limbs or eyes, deeply scarred and wounded inside and out. There was no parade for them, no honor, just unending pain and trauma. She was Terrified for her son. Ryan Green describes her feelings here. Her Giuseppe, he was no soldier. He couldn't even win the few fist fights that his idiot friends had dragged him into throughout the years. If he went off to war, then he'd come home in a casket if there was even enough of him to be scraped together. These were her rational concerns, the ones that any mother in the same position would share, but Leonardo didn't live in a rational world. Her world wasn't composed of logic. It was a darker and more chaotic place. Her world was composed of spells and curses, words and herbs that could heal or kill. In that world, there was no coincidences or bad decisions. There was only the will of Leonardo set against the power of a curse so powerful that had destroyed an entire town the last time it flexed. All of her studies had been leading her to this moment. Fate had been leading her to this singular crisis point. Even the destruction of their life back in Lacedonia had just been a prelude to the battle that she'd now fight to save her son. Everything that she'd learned through her studies and dealings with the other fatuccieri had been learned to protect her precious, miraculous son from harm. It would be the greatest magical working that she'd ever attempted, and it would take her days or weeks of study just to be certain of the metaphysical underpinnings of the spells that could save him. Oh, no. Oh, she's about to get real witchy up in here. This is where the the spooky pre-Halloween episode comes in here, folks. I'm like nervous for her. This is, is not – everything that has happened to this point, even the bank fraud, we're on Leonardo's side. We feel bad for her. We, we suffer with her. We feel her loss. This is when we stop feeling bad for Leonardo. Oh, gosh. So she dug into her ancient texts feverishly and could only come up with one solution – It was a rule that had been codified in the study of alchemy, which had later been absorbed into dozens of different mystical traditions, the law of equivalent exchange. If you've seen The Witcher, you'll know what I'm talking about. So any of you fantasy nerdos out there, you'll know it from the scene where they are transforming the flower. I tried to watch it with you, but it was so bad.
0: What? (laughs) It's like my favorite show. I know. I know. I I tried remember I tried
1: to watch it with you at your at your place and just And we and Nathaniel and I were in love with it and you were like, I am not into this. Witcher, Jesse approved, Andy (laughs) not approved. We get a mixed thumbs up, thumbs down on that series. (laughs) So funny. But to sum up what that means, it is to get something, you must give something of equal value. That is to say, to save Giuseppe's life, Leonardo would have to give a life. And she had been prepared to do whatever necessary it was to save her boy since his miraculous birth.
0: Yeah, she's going to kill
1: someone. uh Uh-huh. Even if that something was murder. Yeah, this is not good. This is not good. No, it's not. She set forth to conceive a plan that would include a victim or sacrifice who would not be missed, and a process that would kill most efficiently and ideally painlessly. It doesn't matter if they're not going to be missed according to your standards. Oh no, this is bad. This is all around bad. She's just thinking of it strategically. Yes, of course. But then, how would she finish the ritual and ensure that the veil of protection be placed over her beloved? It was as she contemplated fate that the solution clicked into place at last. Soap and food. Leonardo would use soap and food as the joint mediums by which she would lay her protection on Giuseppe. She would protect him inside and out. It made perfect sense to her. Leonardo decided to lean on her position within the community as a respected businesswoman and well-known fattuciary to attract the perfect victim. She selected a sweet and guileless spinster named Faustina Setti to unwittingly lay down her life for Giuseppe. All throughout her life, poor Faustina had been unlucky in love. Marriage arrangements that had seemed concrete had fallen through, and opportunities for courtship had dried up as the years passed. It was her lack of prospective husbands that had originally brought Faustina to Leonardo's door. And this is something Ryan Green wrote, which I thought was really funny. To be single at this time in your 20s was an embarrassment. In your 30s, a travesty. And by your 40s, it was practically a crime. Oh, no. I think that was just true in this era. Right now, we have a much more enlightened approach to (laughs) singlehood. (laughs) Thank God. And how old is Faustina? She's in her 40s. Yikes. Yeah. So she'd been coming to Leonardo for over a year, begging her to find a suitable partner for her to live out her later years with. So it's easy to see the trap Leonardo would set for Faustina. She would, of course, tell her that she had found a foreign husband for her. It was the original deadly catfish. Leonardo, for her part, didn't feel bad at all about this. In her opinion, she was assisting Faustina in meeting her fate. Just not the fate that Faustina had imagined for herself. It wasn't Faustina's fate to be wed. It was her fate to serve a much higher calling than mere matrimony. She'd gone all her days as a blessed virgin so her soul would be pure enough to ensure protection for Giuseppe.
0: Oh my god, poor girl.
1: I know. But this is what makes her the perfect sacrifice. She died before she got to get laid? Maybe she did get laid and maybe that's why the spell didn't work. Ooh, maybe. That'd be awesome. (laughs) That would be great. We don't know. Maybe Faustina was getting it on the regs. Who knows? Maybe she was secretly down. (sighs) Let's just hope. I hope Faustina had some great sex before she went. Leonarda called the spinster over and told her excitedly she had found a partner for her. The man was from Pola, which is now part of Croatia, and had seen a photo of Faustina and fallen in love. She now needed to prepare her for the journey. She told Faustina she would need to do the following things. One, hand her life savings over to Leonarda so she could book her passage and make travel arrangements. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. To write a letter to each of her friends and family explaining that she was traveling to Pola to meet her husband and start life anew. She should include all the assurances that each loved one would need and describe a safe and happy journey. Leonardo would arrange for each of these letters and postcards to be delivered over the coming weeks to simulate Faustina's journey. When Faustina asked why she couldn't just write the letters as she actually traveled... Leonardo told her that mail service was being interrupted by the war and she didn't want her family to worry. Besides, through Leonardo's mystical powers, she had already foreseen that Faustina's journey would be a safe and happy one. Oh, wow. Yeah, she is pulling out all of the manipulative stops here. Also, she had to tell absolutely no one of her plans in case they jealously tried to talk her out of her journey for love. Faustina promised to say nothing and to show up the next day at dawn, bags packed, which she did. Bubbling with excitement, Faustina showed up in the still dark morning and was rushed inside. Faustina was a bundle of nerves. Oh, poor girl. Oh, this poor girl. She was just preying on her desires. Leonardo looked at her friend fondly, put an arm around her shoulders, and guided her to the kitchen table. Sit and calm yourself. All will be well soon enough. She brought over a decanter and poured out a glass of wine. For your nerves. Faustina took it gratefully, despite the earliness of the hour, and took a long slurp of the bitter herbal red. It did seem to calm her. Leonardo was sitting across the table from her with an unwavering smile fixed on her face. Go on. Drink up. It'll help. With a little giggle, Faustina finished off her drink with a toss of her head, the last grainy dregs of sediment slipping back down the side of the glass. The wine tasted herbal and bitter, and not at all like the sweet red it had been when she took her first sip. Leonardo wasn't saying anything at all, just staring at her. Even her breathing seemed to have stopped. So early in the day, with all of the people in the house gone, it was almost eerily quiet. Usually when Faustina visited, there was the hustle of people being served through in the shop, the bubbling of soap being made, and the soft undercurrent of conversation. But right now, there was dead silence. Slowly, Faustina felt woozy, and the light from outside, which should have been brightening with the rising sun, was darkening instead. She tried to call for her friend, but no words would come. Leonardo had drugged her with a mix of old and new world drugs, muddled herbs, as well as modern day tranquilizers and sleeping pills. No. Mm-hmm. Leonardo disappeared briefly from the room and returned holding an axe. Oh, shit. Faustina struggled to keep her eyes open. The last thing she heard was her trusted friend whisper, Sorry. And then Leonardo brought the axe down upon Faustina, her head. Or? Oh yeah! On well, the first strike hit her shoulder. Okay, and it got stuck in Faustina's shoulder. The wounded woman let out an animal cry as she voided her bowels. Thanks to the drugs, Faustina could not even raise her arms to fight back. She was so doped up. Ignoring the smell of shit and blood and the moans coming from Faustina, Leonarda brought down the axe once more, this time aiming for the very center of her skull. But instead of cleaving it open, it deflected off of the bone. So, guys, this is going to be real, real gruesome for a second if you want to skip ahead. The axe turned, shearing away scalp and face in a great gory mess. How do they have these details? So Leonardo wrote an autobiography, and that's where most of the details of no Ryan way. Book are taken from. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. I always think that's so fascinating.
1: Yeah. Actually, the, this story and next week's both have autobiographies written, so you get the real account from the Ugh. subject. Okay. So this is the reality of what axe murder looks like. It's not – you're not going to just clunk, like, clunk, like, cut somebody's head open. You're going to deflect off of bone. Things are going to fly off. Blood is going to be everywhere. It's it's not a pretty thing. No. So, obviously, has never done this before. So she is, like, completely scared and grossed out and panicked at this point. But she has to remember she's doing this for her son. So she steals herself and she brings the axe down over and over again. At this point, she's basically just closing her eyes and going into a frenzy. And is she casting a spell while she's doing it? Or did she already do it before? Or She's basically doing the ritual with the blood afterwards. Okay, got it. So finally, you know, Faustina stops moving. She's deceased. And she ends up hanging the mutilated body up to drain into a basin. And then she starts cleaning the room up because this is also her soap shop that she's doing this in. I mean, it's the perfect room to (laughs) do some fragrant soap. I miss (laughs) you. Yep. So she needed the pure blood, like not the spilled blood. So she had to like hang up Faustina to get the pure, fresh blood that was dripping off of her. And she eventually emptied the blood into trays and slid them into a roasting oven. The blood would dry out and become a workable ingredient for the spell. Next, she cooked down Faustina's flesh and bones in pots of caustic soda, the same compound that she used to render fat into soap. The powerful formula dissolved every last bit of Faustina's body. From then on, it was like any other day for Leonardo. She used the blood compound to mix into tea cakes for Giuseppe. With extra vanilla to disguise the iron tang of the blood. Oh my God. Blood Mm. tea cakes. Bloody tea cakes. Oh. Leonardo. With with a little bit
0: of vanilla, you know?
1: Yeah, just an extra little hint. Oh God. Leonardo was pleased when she bit into the first batch. No one would ever know that there was a super special ingredient. Mm hmm. That's very Halloween-y. That's very (laughs) Halloween-y. However, her good mood disappeared when she checked on the rendered fat and goo from Faustina's body. It was a foul sludge, corrupted, sickly, and impossible to make soap out of. So in order for this ritual to be complete, she needed him to eat the tea cakes with the human sacrifice in them so that he was like – protected on the inside but also bathe in the soap of the human body so that he was protected on the outside and that was the ritual so she couldn't make soap out of the body then the ritual wasn't gonna work what are you gonna do well (laughs) she needs to start all over again it's time to start from scratch but does it work if you kill someone else well she needs a new sacrifice to start all over God, what a. Uh-huh. That really throws a wrench in her plans, huh? Yes. So she starts, she talks about in her memoirs, she's crying. She's not crying for Faustina. She's crying because she failed her son. I don't really understand if the fat and the skin didn't
0: work for this one. Is she going to find someone less fat or is like, what no, would she do, do different?
1: I think she thought that she needed to find somebody more fat. Uh, okay. There wasn't enough of the good marbled fat on this one. Got it. Or she's thinking spiritually, it was the wrong sacrifice. You know, so she's not maybe thinking rationally. So there was a thought process that maybe, <laughs> of course, <laughs> no, she's not thinking rationally. No, she it did it was suggested in the book that maybe she needed somebody a little heavier. Okay. But also she thinks, well, this was the wrong sacrifice. So she's pondering what she did wrong. So she's asking the same questions that you did. Like I did everything I usually do with rendered fat and it turned out like this disgusting unusual look. Yeah, except it's not usually a human body that you just axed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, small difference, tiny difference. Um, So while she's thinking about what could have gone wrong and what she needs to do, she had Giuseppe post Fustina's letters from the next town over and she fed the bloody tea cakes to her family and visitors to the soap shop. Why? She didn't want to waste them. But is that even, like, healthy? I don't think so. That <laughs> seems like a good way to get one of the hepatitises to me. <laughs> oh, God. Also, like, what if you're vegan? <laughs> That's what you're thinking about? <laughs> What if you're thinking? and you accidentally have a human blood tea cake?
0: With vanilla.
1: With vanilla. The <laughs> vanilla covers it up. Don't worry about it.
0: vanilla. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine you don't even eat oh. milk or like egg products because you don't like suffering and then you're eating somebody who was ax murdered? <laughs> While you're buying your like
0: sweet soaps and they're like- While you're buying oh, your t-
1: high-end luxury soaps. <laughs> This would be a very good hipster shop in L.A. (laughs) Oh, luxury soaps and sacrificial tea cakes. Yes, exactly. Maybe we should go in on it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So, though the full ritual hadn't been completed, at least she was able to get rid of the last bits of evidence in the most unlikely of places. Other people's stomachs. Do you like that one? I wrote that one just for you. Oh, my God.
0: It's disgusting.
1: Who needs pigs when you can just feed it to your customers?
0: Oh, my God. One of us grew up on a farm. Can you guess who?
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Actually, there's a tie-in. You guys, wait till the end of this story because I'm going to give you a special, exclusive Jesse Prey Farm story. (laughs) Get excited. We try not to talk about too many personal tangents in the show because we know you're here for the true crime. But this one's a quick one and it's kind of a crime against me by a pig. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Back to the story. It was August of 1940, and Leonardo only had three months until Giuseppe was scheduled to leave for war. She decided what went wrong was that Faustina had been too old. If it was truly a life for a life, she needed someone young enough to trade with Giuseppe's. She picked a young, childless widow named Francesca Suave. Francesca had left her job to care for her young, sick husband, and after he had died, her post as a school teacher had been filled. For months, she had looked for work, left destitute and nearly homeless after her husband's medical bills took their toll. Leonardo told Francesca that she had found her a position at an elite girls' school in Piacenza, near the Swiss border. Leonarda fed her the same lies about needing money for travel expenses and to write the letters for her loved ones, and of course, tell no one before she left for this stunning job opportunity. Once again, she used the excuse of travel to coax the unsuspecting victim to finish a glass of heavily drugged wine and brought out the axe. This time, as Francesca's head lolled from the medication, Leonarda set out basins around her to catch the very freshest blood. So, this woman's just drugged lying there, and she's like setting out the basins before she even brings out the axe. Like, can you not, could you like stay in that position, please?
0: I'm, I'm, gonna put mm-hmm. a, I'm gonna put a bucket right here.
1: Oh, God. Yep. Then she whispered, rest easy, to the former school teacher, and methodically and without feeling, brought down the axe on Francesca as if she was nothing more than a pig to slaughter.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how she's like mentally preparing herself to do this at this point, right? Yeah,
1: she realized that it was really, really messy, obviously, with, uh, you know, Faustina. And so this time she was like, I just have to not look at her like a person. And she did it a lot more mechanically this time. Afterwards, she dismembered the body carefully and began the ritual anew. Again, the tea cakes came out beautifully. These ones with an almost electric charge, which convinced Leonardo that the spell was working. Alas, when she lifted the lid to check the bubbling fat, it was once again utterly worthless. Uh Uh-oh. She is freaking pissed. Pissed? Mm Mm-hmm. So in Ryan Green's book, he describes that she is in a fury and she grabs onto the nearest pot, intent on flinging it across the room. But before she could, the handles seared the palms of her hands and she leapt back yelping. She was being punished looking down at her hands she could see the marks that this work had put on her her lifeline was bisected by the line of blistering skin on her palms divided neatly in half into the time before this moment and the time after the awful things that she was doing had left their mark on her and the message couldn't be clearer this was the turning point this was when everything would change her fate had been burned into her so, it took almost a full month of study before she worked it out, what she had to do, because of now it's failed twice. She had approached both of her victims with the wrong intent, focusing entirely on the event at hand instead of the larger meaning of her actions. Even though she hadn't been lost in her emotions during the slaying of Francesca, her mind had still been on other matters. The mechanical performance of her task rather than the rituals and rites that she should have been performing. Magic, as she'd learned it, was all about intent. Through intent, the Fattuccieri communicated to the universe at large what changes they wanted to make. And by muddying that intent, by focusing on the physical aspects of the sacrifice, Leonardo had spoiled the working of her will on reality. She had time for only one more attempt before Giuseppe slipped through her fingers and into the maw of death. This time, she wouldn't hesitate and her will would be done. Oof. So she's really hoping that the third time's the charm over here. For her final victim, Leonardo set her sights on the only other woman in town who could compare to her celebrity. Virginia Cacciopo was a former soprano who had sung at famous opera houses like La Scala in Milan. She was elegant, well-educated, and dressed in the finest clothing. Leonardo knew that a woman of her skill and elevation would make a fair trade for her exceptional son. Wooing her into her own demise would prove more difficult than with the others, however, because Virginia was neither desperate nor destitute. There was also the added risk of how much someone as famous as she would be missed. But Leonardo's Giuseppe was worth it. So Virginia also lived with her brother and sister-in-law who really cared for her. So this was really tricky. Like, she lived with people that were going to miss her. She's kind of famous in town. And... She's not as desperate as the two other people. So Leonardo would have to be very subtle this time. She had to like slowly build her story and her demands and layers. So at this point in her life, Virginia wasn't exactly like falling on hard times. She had just kind of passed her prime as a soprano. Okay. And she really wanted to get back into show business, but there wasn't any clear avenues. Obviously, it's a really hard time with World War II going on. Yeah. And she was living with her brother and her sister-in-law, but she really wanted to be working in some capacity, especially if she could be doing something in the arts. So Leonardo started like subtly hinting that she knew this man who was in the arts in Florence and he might need like an attache, like a secretarial type person, but you know. She didn't really know if he was looking or what he wanted. And so she kind of like built this story up about this potential job opportunity, but she made Virginia come to her and basically beg for more information. Okay. So the secrecy of this position was totally catnip to someone as romantic as Virginia. So it kind of like she used the right tactics to reel her in. Yeah. She loved the mystery of the suggestion and she took to prying more details out of Leonardo every time they met. And so after like a week or two, she convinced Leonardo to please tell her more. But of course, Leonardo was like, oh, only on the condition that you have to keep everything a secret because he's extremely private. Yep. Finally, Leonardo revealed that the position was secretarial to a high-flying man in the arts. Virginia would be managing his household and business arrangements. Her background in theater and opera was precisely why this guy would be interested in her. The work would involve the kinds of socializing and parties that Virginia had once considered her second nature, drinking and dancing and networking with people who might be useful for her employer. This empresario lived just outside of Florence, and Virginia would be given an apartment in Florence when she started her work so she could be at the heart of the thriving musical scene. He. He would even give her requisite time off if she decided to once again pursue her singing career.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Sounds so a little too good to be true, Virginia. Really, too good to be true, Virginia. <laughs> So, of course, Virginia is intrigued and delighted and, af- and flattered that this guy has even heard of her, you know? Yeah. Even Leonardo's struggle to pinpoint key details of who exactly this man was and how he had discovered Virginia seemed shrouded in delicious mystery that appealed to Virginia. So promises were made and secret details of the traveling arrangements were delivered to only Leonardo, so she was the only one who had all the information, uh-huh. to be conveyed to Virginia only upon the day she was due to leave. So the whole affair, because he was so rich and famous, was meant to be strictly hush-hush and clandestine. But Virginia being Virginia couldn't help but tell her brother the exciting news and wish him adieu. So Leonardo had told her, like, don't tell your brother and sister you're leaving. Just write these letters, just like she had told everyone else. I'll mail them for you. I'll make sure that they know you're fine, just if... If this guy finds out that you are talking about it like it's a done deal or something, he might not hire you because discretion is really important. Yeah. But she told her brother. She packed up all of her earthly possessions and savings, dressed herself in furs and glittering jewelry, and made her way to Leonardo's on September 30th, 1940, ready to begin her new life. The first setback Leonardo faced was that Virginia had zero interest in drinking the wine she had to offer. Wishing to have a clear head for the journey ahead of her. Smart. Yeah, super smart. And also really weird that everyone else was just kind of like, okay. Yeah. Throw it back. Although I probably would. You, you would be Virginia. I'd be the first two that's like, yeah, wine at 6 a.m. Why not? (laughs) You'd be like, it's 6 a.m. Are you kidding me? Uh, Leonardo cajoled and convinced until Virginia relented, saying, I don't know why you're so intent on me drinking this wine, but if it's that important to you, then I shall. Oh, no, 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 Virginia. Nope. Nope. Not good. Don't don't let anyone ever talk you into drinking, eating, or fucking anything you don't want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ugh. As Virginia nodded off, Leonardo shamelessly divested her of her furs and jewelry. So now she's going so far as to like lay out the buckets and remove all of her jewelry and clothing while the woman is drugged and passed out. Well, she was stealing from the other poor women. So this doesn't yes. surprise me. No, she's just getting better at it, essentially. Yeah, she's crafty. Finally, Leonardo brought the heavy axe down on her sleeping friend, ripping open her chest and neck and continuing her devastation on the poor woman's body until the once-beautiful soprano stopped twitching. The blood ran rich and red as wine into the basins. Her flesh, torn open, was layered with thick white fat. Just Perfect, Leonardo thought reverentially and hoping the third time was truly the charm, she began her evil ritual. This time, she gave great care, thought, and intention to the process. From Virginia's trunk, she dragged out a bottle of expensive perfume, sniffing it to make sure it was the one that the victim had been wearing that day. She dumped the whole bottle into her soap soup. That was better. The soap smelled like Virginia again. It was best to keep a lid on the soap for the rest of the process, but she could feel in her bones that it was going to work this time. She'd found the missing ingredients of the ritual, the blood she prepared as usual, and the tea cakes soon followed after. But when Leonarda bit into them, she was startled at the flavor. They weren't dry and tinged with iron. They were sweet sweet. Far sweeter than they had any right to be. Leonardo couldn't have asked for a better guardian angel for her beloved son than the woman she'd once called a friend. Oh, brutal. So beyond the finery and the beautiful jewels, Leonardo uncovered 50,000 lira in the lining of the chest. That was more than Leonardo made in a year. Ugh. With this last gruesome killing, she had saved Giuseppe's life and secured her future. She would never struggle again. All of her problems solved in one day, thanks to Virginia. Yeah, thanks to your third murder. She's so bananas, this woman. Poor girl. After she finished cleaning every inch of her soap shop, she checked her misbegotten concoction. It was perfect. Oh, perfect, perfect fat soap. Creamy, sweet, aromatic. (laughs) She had done it. The perfect luxury soap. Martha Stewart could not have made human soap better than this bitch.
0: Oh, man. Oh, man. Of course it's some, like, really wealthy woman.
1: You know, she's probably really well eaten. Oh, yeah. It's like a foie gras goose. Like, just... (laughs) Filled to the brim with delicious fatty foods. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now, the only thing left to do was protect Giuseppe inside and out. When the 18-year-old returned home for the day, his mother forced him to draw a bath. His mother had been anxious, smothering, and eccentric his entire life, so he wasn't surprised by her bizarre insistence that he take a bath right there and then. But what disturbed him greatly was that she insisted on bathing him like a child, washing his body from head to toe, shampooing his hair, and even mortifyingly scrubbing and cleaning his nether regions. Not okay, mom. Not okay. So my story that ties into this moment, tragically, is when I was 12… My godmother, Maggie's nephew was visiting and he was really cute. His name was Jonah and he was from Colorado and I lived in a really small town in upstate New York. So it was really exciting that there was like this cute older boy visiting. And so I was hanging out with him and Maggie suggested that we go down and look at these piglets that had just been born on a neighboring farm, which is what you do when you live in a farm town and you get three television channels. (laughs) You go look at new piglets. So she made it really clear you you know cross this one fence but don't cross the second fence because I guess coyotes <laughs> had tried to attack the piglets and the mother sow was really ornery. So she's like just don't get into the the pen with them, just take a look. But she didn't know because of that coyote attack that the farmer had taken down the second fence to fix. So we cross the first fence and then there's no second fence. We're like, that's weird. We only crossed one fence, but it must be fine because she would have told us. So we're like in the pen with this 600-pound sow, humongous, and her piglets. And we're like, oh, look at those little piglets. They're so cute. And all of a sudden, like a horror movie, this huge pig just rolls over. And my first thought is, oh my God, that pig is going to kill her piglets because I thought she rolled over on top of them. Yeah. And then my second thought is, holy shit, I'm so fucked right now because she starts going towards us. So I turn around to run and he's going – he gets like out of his mouth and I'm on the ground, the 600-pound pig on top of me. What? Yeah. And so he can't – he can't see me. He sees like half my body and the pig's like – tearing at my jeans it's like biting me I don't remember this I was in total shock so my face is like on the ground and I'm like all I'm thinking about was those old advertisements called um when animals attack it would be like you know on tv like you could order this like a set of videos about all of animal attacks and there's like this one where this deer is hitting a hunter in the face with its you know paws or hooves
0: that's amazing
1: I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die a pig, and it's gonna be in the newspaper. The local girl dies from being eaten by a pig. And I'm <laughs> laying there and I can't move. And he's apparently like punching this pig. He's like punching it. <laughs> and it turns around and it bites him in the leg and it tears through his Jinko jeans. <laughs> Which, not the you- Jinko jeans. Well, First of all, Jinkum jeans were very expensive. Number two, if anyone remembers, they're huge parachute-like pants that have lots of fabric. So the fact that he ripped these thick, crazy large pants was because this pig was evil. And so finally, Maggie's dog runs down and the dog starts like nipping at the, the pig. And so the pig turns around and goes after the dog. And so the poor kid, Jonah's like... Jesse, get up, get up. But I'm in shock. I can't get up. I'm just laying in the grass. So he was like a like a footballer type. He picks me up and throws me over his shoulder and literally hurdles this the fence to get me outside of the pen. And he puts me down. And I thought this boy was so cute. And he had just rescued me. And he literally puts me down on the ground and I vomit all over his feet. He <laughs> just it's complete shock. And I just puke. And he was wearing flip-flops. Well, that's his fault. That's his fault. You don't wear (laughs) flip-flops on a farm. Are you kidding me? So anyway, Maggie calls my mom and makes my mom come pick me up immediately. And my mom has worked on a farm for a decade at this point, more, two decades maybe. And so she knows that farmers have died from slipping in a pig's pen because pigs are mean motherfuckers. So she's like, oh, no, you probably have internal bleeding. You're probably bruised. Something's wrong with you. And I'm like, mom, I'm fine. Just let me like go to bed and live out the shame of puking on this boy. I like's feet forever. Just let me go. And she's like, no, you know what? Take off your clothes, get in the bath. I'm just going to like check your body to make sure that you're not bruised anywhere. And she made me get into the bathtub and she washed me with a washcloth like a baby. And it was by far the worst part of the entire ordeal. I would rather be attacked by like (laughs) 1,500 pound pigs than have my mother bathe me when I'm 12 years old. You were only 12? I was 12. Jonah was like 13 or 14, I think. (laughs) Oh my God. It was terrible.
0: Anyway. Would you you not do the same thing though with Alden now?
1: Oh, I would do exactly the same thing. I know exactly why she did it and she was – really satisfied like oh okay you actually look fine we don't need to take you to the hospital to get x-rays I'm like I know I'm fine mom I know it I love you
0: like teenage Cartman voice
1: <laughs> well if anyone if you guys knew me at 12 I sounded exactly like that it's only been in my adulthood I've cultivated this,
0: this sexy, sexy voice. radio
1: voice <laughs> I had to go through a lot of speech therapy for this Oh, my God. Oh, Yeah. So anyway, what I'm saying is that I really feel for Giuseppe in this moment. Yeah. I was wondering
0: where your story was going to tie in.
1: That's the tie-in. Because if I felt that mortified at my totally normal mother trying to just, like, make sure I was okay when I was 12 – I can only imagine how an 18 year old man would feel with his completely unbalanced mother scrubbing his ball sack.
0: It's not okay. It's
1: not okay. (laughs) Definitely not okay. So, when this devil's bath was done, she forced Giuseppe to sit in a towel in the kitchen and eat the tea cakes. Any chance at refusal was totally thwarted by her hysteric pleadings. He did as he was told, not meeting her eye and counting down the days until he could escape this <laughs> wretched woman and start his life for real. God, can you imagine? Poor kids like, "Oh my
0: god," and she's like, "I'm just trying to save you." <laughs> exactly. Like she's like, "I'm saving your life. Eat another tea cake." Oh, the story's really getting me. Oh. Oh, the level of crazy is really getting
1: getting me. Well, this really. is the thing. Like, I think that humor and <laughs> grotesque things go hand in hand because our brains can't make sense of it. Like, we're fragging right now. We're fragging at how disgusting this is. And so all we can do is make jokes <laughs> because it's so <laughs> grotesque. Oh, God.
0: Poor kid. Um, He doesn't know that he just bathed himself in a victim's fat.
1: His little did he know that he had just been covered head to toe, inside and out, with human remains. Every part of him, coated in human body.
0: To everyone who thinks their mom is mean.
1: Yeah, anyone who has just a normal kind of annoying mom, at least she hasn't turned you into an involuntary cannibal. <laughs> at least she has oh not my pr- God. personally made you a member of a very, very small and disgusting club.
0: Oh, God. We're going to have yep. so many closing statements.
1: So many closing statements here for this one. In conclusion, (laughs) it's going to go on for half an hour. There's going to have to be an index on this one. (laughs) Uh. Uh, And so although Giuseppe refused to speak with his mother for days after these bizarre antics and, you know, this egregious invasion of privacy – Leonardo still felt a sense of peace like she had never felt before. Fate couldn't harm him now. He wouldn't die before her. The curse was defeated. She had won. So he's like refusing to speak to his mom and she's like, whatever. He can hate me, but he's going to live now. So basically the same way I feel like when I put a leash on Alden, you know, she might be mad, but I'm keeping her alive. Same <laughs> you, you don't do that. I don't. I don't. <laughs> Guys, I don't actually put a leash on my two-year-old. I promise. <laughs>
0: oh my god but there's so many people who do so we should probably stop laughing
1: no it's true you know what if i lived in a city i would definitely get one of those little backpack leash numbers we just live out in the middle of nowhere so i don't have as many occasions to reel her in like a little oh, fit oh my god oh my god <laughs> <laughs> With her life's work complete, all that Leonardo had left to do now was live out the rest of her days and dispose of what remained of Virginia. The tea cakes didn't go to waste. Every day, Leonardo had half a dozen visitors that she shared advice, tea, and coffee with. She hoped that some portion of the protection spell might be passed on to them, too. As for the soap, she wouldn't tarnish the sacrifice that she'd made by selling it, but she was happy to make a gift of a bar of it here or there to those that she considered her most important friends. Oh, woof. If the protection spell rubbed off on them, all the better. (laughs) If not, it was still some perfectly serviceable soap that she didn't want to go to waste. The evidence of her crimes vanished bite by bite and wash by wash until there was no trace left of the women that these consumable objects had been. Wow. This is one way to get rid of a body, man. And no
0: one thought about three missing women, that it was weird in
1: town? Well… Eventually, some. Well, eventually, someone did. So, for a short while, she was gloriously happy. And though there was no bodily evidence, and she had taken care to send Virginia's pre written letters as usual, suspicion lingered in the village, especially for Virginia's brother and sister in law, who had had trouble swallowing the tall tale of the mysterious employer right from the beginning. Yeah. Mrs. Cacioppo, eschewing social strata and convention began her own investigation, quizzing townspeople from all walks of life on her famous sister-in-law's last known whereabouts. She also attempted to pinpoint who would have the social reach to introduce Virginia to this mysterious boss. Both avenues led her back to only Leonardo. When Mrs. Cacioppo paid Leonardo a visit, it turned into a befuddling, confused mess. Like So she comes in to ask her questions, and Leonardo insists on reading the woman's palm before she can even ask about her sister-in-law. And she's like, ooh, it looks like uh, there's going to be health and prosperity for your children and grandchildren. And Mrs. Cacioppo is like, no, 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 I'm not here for this. I don't even believe in this. Like, I I don't want your fortune-telling BS. I just want to know where my sister-in-law was, and I know that she was here. And Leonardo just bursts into tears, which is very suspect, obviously. And then she apologizes profusely and is like, oh, I have the gift of sight, but I do not know where Virginia is. And I'm just so sad because I'm her friend too. And, you know, I was really hoping my psychic abilities would let me like help you, but I don't, I don't know where she is. Mm -hmm. So, so Mrs. Cacioppo had entered the shop based on a tip and now she was like, Okay, this bish definitely has something to do with it, right? So she starts having these quick conversations with Leonardo's neighbors, and they help provide her with a timeline of Virginia's departure. This was the last place that the former soprano had been seen before vanishing without a trace. Nobody had seen her leave the building. Nobody had seen a taxi. She'd gone into Leonardo's house and never returned. Armed with this little tidbit on top of her already growing suspicions, Cacioppo went to the police. The locals had already treated her worries with scorn, so she passed them over and approached the superintendent for the whole province of Reggio Emilia. A simple investigation uncovered the disappearance of the other two women, and more thorough work began to link the vanished women to Leonardo's household as well. The stories of the (laughs) neighbors—this isn't looking good—became more tangled with the other women because it seemed— that it had been some time since they were all last seen in Correggio, but the police were able to confirm that both of them visited Leonardo on or around the date of their disappearances. Mm-hmm. So Leonardo was brought in for questioning as the obvious point of contact between the three women, but she gave them nothing. Of course. So she was stone cold dummying up on them. Except a bar of soap. <laughs> She's like, for your troubles. For your <laughs> troubles. Here's the... A- Here's a lovely lavender body soap. I mean, lavender soap. (laughs) The police investigation didn't stop just because she was stonewalling them. They didn't have the evidence they needed to meet Italy's strict demands for search and seizure. So they had to follow whatever leads they could. And the only hard evidence that they could follow was the letters. By examining the envelopes and calculating the delivery times, they were able to track the specific dates that the three of them had been sent. So smart. Very smart. Good police work. Mm -hmm. From there, they followed the postmarks to the local post offices and interviewed around until they found out who sent them. The trail led back to an interesting suspect. Though they were expecting Leonardo, the person they could connect to the letters was none other than Giuseppe. She had him do it? She had him mail the letters. So he's going to go to jail. Mm Mm-hmm. Armed with this new evidence, they got a warrant to raid the soap shop where they found, hidden in a closet, all three of the missing women's belongings. Whoops. Uh Uh-huh. She she got rid of their bodies. She didn't get rid of their stuff. Oh, Honey. Their theory was that young Giuseppe, who everybody knew was about to leave town, killed the women for their material possessions and the means to start life anew elsewhere. They arrested him immediately. So it's pretty ironic that she was doing this to save him and she got him arrested for triple homicide. Yep. So when they brought him in, Giuseppe was no help whatsoever. He was totally, utterly confused At the accusations and completely unable to answer the most pressing question that they had, which was, where are the bodies? Yeah. So he's like, I don't know. I didn't kill anyone. What are you talking about? I don't know what my mother's up to. I'm not involved in this. And they're like, how did you kill them? Where are their bodies? And he's like, I don't know. So as Giuseppe was being interrogated, Leonardo showed up and demanded to be interviewed. She confessed completely to the murders. At first, they thought she was a sweet, misguided mama attempting to take the rap for her murderous son, but as she disclosed the gruesome details of her crime, they realized she was not joking. But now the question was, was she the sole murderer or simply an accessory to Giuseppe's murder? All that they really needed from her so-called confession was the answer to where the bodies were buried, which was when the investigation finally took another dark turn towards the truth. She told them in detail about the way that she drained off the blood and dried it in the oven. The police weren't familiar with caustic soda any more than Giuseppe was, so she had to tell them all about the effects of the compound in agonizing detail before they could grasp that they weren't going to be finding any bodies. She liquefied her victims and poured them out like yesterday's leftovers, all except for her beloved Virginia who'd made the perfect soap. The police were all looking queasy as they recounted the story to Giuseppe, hoping against hope that he'd provide them with some other story that they could pretend was the truth. Instead, they had to watch as all of the color drained from his face and he began vomiting.
0: Yeah, because he knows.
1: He knows and he ate it and yeah. she bathed him in it. The bizarre bath time ritual suddenly made sense and all of the secrets about his mother that he'd been holding back poured out in a great, nauseous wave. Oh. He told them about her study, the curse, and her occult obsessions. Everything that he knew, he told them, not to buy his freedom, but to free himself from the guilt of knowing that such horrors had happened in his very own home. Poor Giuseppe. Oh, poor Giuseppe. That will F you up for real. Yeah. As you can imagine, the town went wild Everyone questioned every bar of soap they'd ever bought from the famed soap maker. <laughs> of course. I mean, think about like how crazy we all get when we hear there's like an E. coli breakout. Imagine yeah. finding out that your favorite soap maker was feeding you blood tea cakes and body soap. No. It's like no. not okay. Not Okay. So when the story of these blood tea cakes spread, all of her clients were sick to their stomachs, realizing they were or might have been turned into involuntary cannibals.
0: Yeah, that's like fucked up. Like I said, they could have been vegan.
1: (laughs) I don't know if anyone was vegan in 1940 Italy. (laughs) But still, it's fucked up. Nobody wants to eat people, not even (laughs) non-vegans.
0: But... But especially especially
1: especially
0: vegans. Oh my
1: god! God, that that would be a way if you really wanted to, like torture a vegan. Yeah, that's
0: that's really bad.
1: That's so screwed up.
0: (laughs) Oh my god! Don't get any
1: ideas. And the worst part was Giuseppe was vegan. It was hard enough for an Italian boy in 1940 to be vegan, but then his mother had to feed him human tea cakes.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but mama, they don't have Beyond Meat.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, God. Oh. So yeah, every piece of advice she'd given or fortune told was reconsidered in the light of the dark revelations. Rumors of witchcraft and Satanism abounded. The Pansardi family was plunged into ruin. Raphael lost his job, and the shop, of course, immediately went under. Giuseppe's military deployment was his only saving grace. He would have gone to hell itself to escape his mother at that point. He left Italy with his unit, not bothering to stop at the jailhouse to say goodbye to the woman who had quite literally killed for him. Three times. Three times. So he he never saw her again. Okay. Leonardo's trial took six years to hit the courts due to World War II, and by the time she got her moment at the stand, she was quite the spectacle. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, she, she went a little loony in those six years. Leonardo narrated a full list of her crimes so some of the descriptions of the crimes are from her memoirs okay and some of them are from her time on the stand where she just brutally broke down how she killed all these people Whoa! she was completely remorseless and even mocked the anguished cries of her victims loved ones oh yeah she went pure evil as her testimony rolled on, she started telling body jokes that no one but she laughed at. She became more and more histrionic, even stopping to spit at the court every once in a while. Like she is like acting like a villain in like the WWF like, like she's, like, playing this role, acting it up, and it seemed like she really liked being the center of attention. I think after a lifetime of being overlooked or abused and then six years in jail awaiting for this trial, I yeah. think it just pent up all of this crazy, you know? Yeah. An expert witness dared to say that there was no way a body could be entirely destroyed with caustic soda, the way Leonardo described, and she burst out angrily, bring a body to the court. Give me any body of any age right now and I will prove it. It's like, okay, well, never mind. Now we don't need to
0: <laughs> demonstrate.
1: Good. You're not Bill Nye the science guy over here. We're not going to all sit here while you dissolve a body. After six years of waiting, Leonardo was convicted in only three days. Her sentence was 30 years in prison, followed by a three-year stint in a mental asylum to ensure she was mentally well enough to return to society. That's it? hmm But she was already kind of older at this point, so okay. there was, I think, some idea that she might not survive this. Okay. In the end, the prophecy was true. On one hand, prison, and on the other, a mental asylum. And did all of her kids pass away? Uh, This is what we're going to get into next. Okay. Leonardo enjoyed her years in Pazuli Prison, making friends, working in the kitchen of all places. Stop. And writing books. Ryan Green drew many details for the very book we're quoting from, from her autobiography titled Confessions of an Embittered Soul. Whoa. She also filled the book with recipes, pouring all of her culinary knowledge onto the pages beside gruesome descriptions of how she dismembered her victims and cooked them into a soapy stew. In the book? mm Mm-hmm. In her – so this was like all in her memoirs. Like she's talking about how she dismembered her victims and then she's like, also, this is a great muffin recipe. (laughs) That's what I was imagining. Yes, this is exactly what she did. She even included the cannibalistic tea cake recipe, only she offered it up without blood. She's like, without blood, you do it this way. When I killed all these people, I just added the blood in at this step. Oh, my God. The craziest thing about this whole thing is that this book was one of the most- Number one
0: on Amazon. (laughs)
1: Almost. Am I almost. Right? Am I almost. I um, right? This book was one of the most complete collections of traditional Italian baking techniques ever written and is still referred to by some top chefs in Italy today.
0: I cannot. I that makes me second guess. Italian.
1: I'm gonna look this up. We're gonna we're gonna Maybe we'll do like a a bonus episode where we make a murderous tea cake recipe. No, we won't. We definitely won't.
0: (laughs) As long as it has vanilla in it. Lots of vanilla.
1: A gruesome amount of vanilla. I
0: cover up that iron. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It'll be good for you. Everyone needs a little iron, right? 20 years into her sentence, Leonarda suffered a stroke and a doctor discovered an ongoing bleed in her brain. The ongoing bleed was due to the caustic soda vapor poisoning. The same material that dissolved her victim's body also burned holes in her brain and eventually killed her. Wow. So that seems like some real poetic justice. Yeah, that's Carmen J's fairy. Carmage's very all over that. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's probably why she was acting so bizarre at of the course. trial. Of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. Her brain
0: was literally
1: dissolving. Exactly. Wow. She was 76 years old when she finally succumbed to the constant brain bleeds and following her death, no one claimed her body. She was cremated and her remains were disposed of. Like they didn't even bury her in an unmarked grave. They just literally like burned her and like threw her out the door. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so she had been in a mental asylum when she passed. So that prophecy did come true. But what of the other curse that her children would die before her? Well, poor, long-suffering Raphael certainly did. He ended up drinking himself to death before Leonardo even stood trial.
0: Oh, man. Oh, that guy. guy had
1: a horrible life. I mean, think about yeah. it. He went through everything she went through, and she, but she was his partner. Yeah, Their three youngest children all changed their last names in the wake of the murderous scandal. The two girls eventually did marry and, of course, they changed their names again. In the mess of wartime and post-wartime, records were lost and scattered. So we have no idea whether those unfortunate children outlived their mother or not. So there were four of them who... There's four total. So three of them... Kind of just seemed to disappear. And what of Giuseppe, the golden child of this? So according to Ryan Green, there is a record of his deployment to the African theater. And it seems more than likely that he was redirected as the Italian forces fought their retreat from their imperial holdings in East Africa into the Tunisia campaign. There, the Italian and German forces won several key victories that seemed to be turning the tide of war in their favor before interdiction tactics cut off their supply lines and left them without the supplies they needed to continue. In May 1943, the Africa Corps was brought to its knees, and while some of their leadership escaped, the vast majority of the Italian First Army was captured by the Allied forces and transported back to the UK as prisoners of war. It would be here that any official record of Giuseppe Pansari would be likely to appear, but his name is nowhere to be seen. Huh. Either he died in the fields of Africa, or he had successfully passed himself off as someone else, to the degree that even the military of his own country had been fooled when preparing his papers. Hmm. So, it seems most likely, however... That he had died. So, therefore, that part of the prophecy seems to have held true. All of Leonardo's sacrifices had been made in vain. So, I think this is a really good lesson for parents. (laughs) I think as parents, we need to let our children fight their own battles and overcome their own prophecies. I mean, I really, really love my kid, but there is... No way I'd make people soap for her. (laughs) I would hope so, (laughs) Jesse. Just saying. I would do anything for love, but I wouldn't make people soap. Nope. That's that's off the table. Totally off the table. It's a deal breaker. Sorry, kid. I might make you wear a leash, but no people soap. So that is the completely banana story of Italy's first female serial killer, our girl, Leonarda Cianciulli Bansardi. Well, I'm I'm sufficiently terrified. Yeah, that was a good pre-Halloween story, huh? Yep. Okay, so y'all are going to need to hang on to your hats because next week, I I bumped this story. This was supposed to be our Halloween week story. So that means next week I have something even more gruesome and terrifying coming up I... for our main Halloween episode.
0: I wouldn't expect anything less from you. (laughs) I'm so glad you have high expectations for me.
1: I, I yearn to live up to them. I yearn to live up to all of your expectations. So keep raising the bar. Let's do this thing. Okay, so yes, leading up to next week, you guys just stay tuned because it's going to be a ride. And also, thanks to everyone out there for listening. I'm, I hope you guys enjoyed my little personal story and this crazy, crazy story of an Italian serial killer. And if you've made it this far, please, please, please take a minute to give us a five-star rating or drop a line in a review and let us know what you think. We will adore you for infinity
0: yeah we got a couple of really cute ones over the past week so
1: yes oh gosh thank you in. guys so much it makes our day in conclusion pigs are more evil than you thought <laughs> <laughs> they really are they really um, are
0: I would like to advise you to never eat tea cakes from a stranger
1: oh that's really important as Halloween uh-huh. is coming up don't take any yeah. cakes or yep. candy they used to say candy but now it's tea cakes <laughs> it's definitely tea <laughs> cakes <laughs> And lastly, remember, we're all just one crazy mother away from involuntary cannibalism. Arrivederci. Ciao.